and good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, anything can happen. <clears throat> and I've said it a million times, and I'll probably say it a million more. It used to be that those weird, unusual, unexpected, unprogrammed things kind of only happened at this time of night and later. Now, of course, it's 24-7. It's relentless. Uh, we're going through an extraordinary epoch in planetary history, in global history, in U.S. history. I mean, I don't... Uh, every day I see commentators saying, well, this is unprecedented, or this has never happened before, or can you believe... That? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So tonight we're going to be looking into the future. And I would have said a few years ago into the more distant future, but things are happening at such an accelerated rate that uh, a major milestone in the future we're going to talk about tonight is probably, and we're, we'll explain what the probably means uh, shortly, uh, will take place in the next few months. In fact, there's going to be two events that will take place in the next few months which will have a major role in determining the future, not just of this uh, nation, but of the world. And we will explain what we mean by that in detail very shortly. Before we uh, get to our guest this morning, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to uh, Doug, because he's been following the details of all the stuff that I have not had time to follow, given all the other stuff which is going on. Um, let me do a few news items here at the top. Um, I presume, I hope... I wish that you all were following the developments uh, off North Africa in the Canary Islands to a little island called La Palma. Uh, La Palma is erupting. La Palma is an island volcano located, as I said, just off the northwest coast of Africa. And for the last week, it began erupting last Sunday, so it's six days going on maybe seven depending upon the time zones over there. Um, La Palma began erupting again. Now, this is a sporadically um, active volcano. The last set of eruptions were something like 30 years ago. And uh, the reason that we're monitoring closely is because, A, the eruptions are becoming really rather dramatic. Um, if you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our, our webpage, that's our homepage, and click on tonight's banner, um, which says rather dramatically, Musk's grand plan to save humanity by inheriting the solar system. And our, our guest there, Dr. Douglas Plata, click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, you'll see fast links. Click on my name, Richard. That will take you to the items for tonight. And item number one is an update website which has been set up to give us real-time data on La Palma, including new images, new video, uh, how many thousands of homes have been destroyed by this uh, eruptive lava. A new vent apparently opened this afternoon. And there's also a seismic plot. Now, the thing you want to focus on is the seismic plot because 20-plus um, years ago, there were a couple of geologists who wrote a paper. I believe they were based out of Britain. I'm not sure. Memory uh, does not always serve. But they, they, 
made a very startling proposal, which is that if a big enough eruption or a big enough earthquake occurred to La Palma, about half of the island would slide into the Atlantic Ocean, something like 500 billion tons of uh, basalt. And what that would do, again, according to their calculations, is create a mega tsunami. In fact, uh, at the final stage of the uh, uh, eruption slash, you know, sliding uh, motion of a lot of the mass of the island, the mass would be accelerating toward the Atlantic at about 200 miles an hour. Now, it doesn't take a genius to uh, realize that that amount of material hitting the Atlantic Ocean at that velocity is going to create a wave, a very big wave. Some calculations indicate that the splash could be 3,000 feet high. In other words, the wave, the tsunami, would start from this catastrophe over half a mile in the sky, racing in all directions outward from La Palma um, across the Atlantic Ocean and northward and southward. And it would put in jeopardy everyone living along the, the coast of the North Atlantic, including Europe, uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, Greenland, Iceland, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Boston, everything up and down the east coast of the United States, into the Caribbean, around into the Gulf of Mexico, um, the um, shoreline of, of the Gulf. In other words, water goes wherever it wants to go, and this would be such an enormous energy application uh, to the wave functions of the Atlantic that there would be little in the Western Hemisphere that would not be touched by this extraordinary event. As we've been looking at La Palma in the last week since the eruptions began, um, it has had stops and starts, lulls, periods of intensive activity. Now, as of this afternoon, there are reports, and again, click on that link, um, that it's uh, shattering windows two miles away from the volcano on the slopes where they built an awful lot of houses. Why do people do that? because they are told the volcano was extinct. Yeah, right. Anyway, it's uh, it's apparently uh, destroyed something like 400 homes and other dwellings. It's uh, uh, made about 7,000 people uh, the, the need to evacuate. All flights in and out of La Palma have now been stopped. I'm not sure about ocean travel yet. There is thick ash. There are clouds of... Um, um, you know, noxious gases like hydrogen sulfide that these volcanoes emit. Um, and there are these explosions because it's a pyroclastic volcano, meaning that it's not, the, the, the lava is not runny like water. It's much thicker and it clogs and then there are explosive gas discharges and that's what causes the shock waves. In other words, La Palma tonight is a place you need to watch. So, for everyone living along the coasts of the Atlantic Ocean, and I'm talking South America, the Caribbean, North America, uh, Canada, and Europe, all of Europe, including Spain, including France, including England, you want to uh, set your smartphone so there are alerts 
live real-time alerts from seismic activity at La Palma. And if there is a major quake, like a six or a seven, or God help us, an eight, um, part of that island could dislodge. There is a visible uh, fault. You can actually walk through it, which was created by an earthquake, I believe, uh, 1949. I mean, just like yesterday in terms of geology. Again, this is all a low probability scenario. There's no need to panic. If you set your 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 um, alerts on your phone properly to the USGS or to the European equivalent, and it gives you an alert when there's a major earthquake, and you can set the magnitude, you know, so you can kind of watch this, you know, if you're very, very paranoid. Um, you'll have, if there's a big one and the island lets go, you'll have between six and nine hours. I've been telling folks six. It turns out that the wave will be a little longer in getting to the East Coast. It'll be much shorter for Europe, so you want to adjust your uh, positions accordingly. But you want to have a bag packed. You want to have your computer stuff on a, you know, a, a thumb drive. You want to be ready because this is not a zero probability. It's low, but it's not zero. Now, if you look at item number two, um, these are a series of images taken from the International Space Station and from some of the um, weather satellites. And from space, it's gorgeous. It's amazing. It's It certainly, you know, lays out the uh, uh, things that Mother Nature can do on planet Earth when it, you know, has a mind to. But keep in mind that uh, the real problems are for folks on the ground. Uh, I would not want to be a resident of La Palma tonight. Uh, again, all those houses built on the slopes because, you know, it's like over here. When uh, when we have hurricanes, you know, you'll see people busily rebuilding houses that are destroyed in the same place, right along the same shore. And uh, that's not a good idea. Anyway, the reason that this is interesting, and we're going to go into this much more tomorrow night when... Uh, we have members of the Enterprise Imaging Team, and we talk about the Mars and Moon excursions of uh, Elon Musk's visions. Um, something very curious happened on Mars, literally at about the time that La Palma began to erupt. A few hours before, literally a few hours <clears throat> before the La Palma eruption, the NASA InSight spacecraft, which, as you know, uh, like a thousand days ago, give or take, uh, landed in the northern hemisphere of Mars. It's called InSight because it carried for the first time since Viking a seismometer, which is a gadget designed to detect Earth movement to be on Mars, uh, Mars quakes. And they detected on the 18th of September, literally a few hours before La Palma, the largest Earth recorded on Mars since it landed. And that's in that thousand-day window. Back in 2019, uh, it detected on the Richter scale a 3.7. Well, the ones that it detected, there were there were a, a, a three of them. Uh, a couple of them on the 25th of August, and one on the 18th of September, and they were much stronger than the one back in 20. Mars is very very earthquake silent. It's really really calm. And the uh, instrument, which is incredibly sensitive, 
um, has to uh, reach down into the noise to even detect much of a signal because Mars is geologically very, 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 very quiet. There's no internal energy, which makes what I'm going to say next all the more amazing. And we'll go into the details tomorrow night. You know, preview, um, spoiler alert, um, the earthquake that InSight detected and radioed back to Earth at the speed of light on the 18th, a few hours before La Palma let go, <clears throat> lasted for 90 minutes. Let me repeat that. The largest earthquake currently detected on Mars by the NASA InSight mission a week ago on the 18th, which is literally a week ago uh, before tonight, <clears throat> was A, the largest they've detected, and it went on for 90 minutes. What? I mean, there's no such thing as a 90-minute earthquake on Earth. Like I just said, Mars is very, very quake quiet. There's not much energy running around inside the planet. It died time ago, geologists tell us, planetologists. So where did the energy come from to produce a minute earthquake on a silent planet? We will get into this in detail tomorrow night. Item number four. Uh, one of the reasons that we're going to be doing a three-hour discussion tonight of Elon Musk and all of his visions and plans and practicalities and successes and triumphs and constant changes because it's in space that the answer to a number of these terrestrial planetary scale problems, um, in fact, uh, await They're from space that you cannot do from Earth. And we'll get into some of those this morning as our conversation proceeds. And one of the things that um, Musk's company has done is to foster such a dramatic decrease in the price of getting into space, of getting into uh, low Earth orbit and returning safely with his reusable rocket technology, etc., etc., that about two weeks ago on Wednesday, uh, which was what, the um, 18th, 17th, 15th, on the 15th, um, a group of four civilians, uh, which were organized and paid for by a another billionaire, uh, Musk is one, of course, and this guy whose name is uh, uh, Gerald Isaacman, he took a group of people, four, I'm sorry, three other civilians into space for three days. And just so I don't mess up their names, let me tell you who they were. <clears throat> they were Isaacman, who financed the mission in a contract with, of course, uh, Musk and SpaceX. There was um, a young lady named Hallie Arsenault, 29. She was a she's a childhood cancer survivor um, and a St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital physician assistant. And the whole focus of the mission was as a fundraiser to raise money for St. Jude's and they raised something like $160 million as of uh, last week of a $200 million goal set by Isaacman. And after they um, had raised about 160 mil, 
Musk uh, tweeted that he would uh, put in about 10, uh, I'm sorry, 50 million more, which put them about $10 million over their goal. And they have not uh, kind of, you know, ceased those fundraising activities. So who knows by the end of their campaign how much they could have um, raised. And that will be part of our discussion tonight with uh, Dr. Plata, because I have some I think, you know, relevant questions about the, the mission, which, again, in context, make will make a great deal of sense. And without the context, will not make any sense at all. So I will defer that uh, conversation until um, uh, I have Doug on the air. Getting back to the list, item number five, um, you know that a few months ago, uh, signed a contract, a $2.9 billion contract with SpaceX to provide the lunar landing spacecraft for the Artemis uh, NASA program to return Americans to the moon. And as soon as uh, NASA had awarded the contract to Musk, um, Jeff Bezos, remember there's another billionaire in the uh, fun and games in outer space, well, Jeff Bezos uh, sued him, claiming that the NASA procurement procedures and contract over oversight, et cetera, et cetera, was somehow deficient, and he wanted a piece of the action. Well, if you look at item number five, uh, the, um, the government, the U.S. government, in the form of the uh, Government Accountability Office, ruled that the space agency's announcement that NASA awarded the uh, contract to SpaceX was without flaw. It... it um, uh, followed all the prerequisites of these contracting procedures. And um, so Bezos is kind of uh, left out in the cold now because they immediately filed an appeal. And this has been delaying now the launch from Texas, Boca Chica. We're going to talk about what the heck is Boca Chica in a moment, um, of his first effort to put the big Starship spacecraft that he has built as a successor to the uh, Falcon uh, launch vehicles, both the and the Falcon Heavy. Um, he's going to launch this spacecraft, which will ultimately, according to the NASA contract, be the missions, or the missions, plural, which take um, uh, NASA astronauts to and from the surface of the moon, from the gateway in orbit around the moon. Uh, that spacecraft will be lofted into Earth orbit, sometime between now and the end of the year. Now, Musk was saying he wanted it to happen by July, but the Bezos litigation with his NASA contract, you know, between SpaceX and the Artemis program, has slowed everything down. And a reporter, I think, asked him the other day if he was going to be able to make the 2024 uh, date for return to the moon set by uh, the Trump administration. And he said in his usual Musk way, uh, probably even before. So um, notwithstanding all these legal details, talk about some of the uh, uh, details tonight in terms of the test of the upcoming um, spacecraft launched from Boca Chica, which takes us into item number six, because if you look there at that little graph, that is an artwork that was produced by the BBC which shows the relative scale size of several major um, rockets and spacecraft that have been part of the human exploration program. On the left is the shuttle, 
Then there's the uh, Falcon Heavy from Musk and SpaceX. Then there's the Space Launch System, which is NASA's big rocket, which is uh, in its initial Block 1 version. And then to the right of that, there's the uh, familiar Saturn V. I was so lucky I got to see several of those things launch. Believe me, unbelievable. And finally, on the far right of the graph, uh, there is uh, uh, Musk's Starship and the Falcon Super Heavy Booster, which is something like 395 feet tall when it's assembled, uh, sitting on its launch platform. And they assembled it, you know, a few days ago, and they've now disassembled it to install more equipment. But if you click on that link, item number six, you will uh, be able to see some of the uh, images, some of the photographs from the stacking process. This is an amazing vehicle. And again, uh, we'll talk in some detail about uh, some aspects of this tonight, and then we'll pick up and extend the conversation uh, tomorrow night. Finally, <clears throat> item number seven. This one is just so cool. Captain Kirk, <clears throat> William Shatner, has signed an agreement with Jeff Bezos to go into space and come back in about 15 minutes. Remember, these are not orbital missions. These are suborbital, both Bezos' activities and Richard Branson's activities with the uh, Virgin Galactic spacecraft. These are suborbital flights that kind of mimic what Alan Shepard did way back in 1961. Um, <clears throat> and passengers, of which there can be, I believe in the Bezos spacecraft uh, six, and someone will correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, Captain Kirk, who is 90 years of age, this is giving everyone, including me, a lot of uh, confidence that we're going to get to do this our, ourselves someday. He will be 90, or he is 90 currently. He's going to go into space with uh, Jeff Bezos, and the flight is scheduled for sometime within the next month, sometime in October. Now, one of the questions I kind of had kind of off the top of my mind was, given the fact that the news item says that the spaceflight mission for uh, Bill is comped, meaning someone else paid the bill, which is only appropriate given how much uh, uh, Will Shatner has d delivered to uh, societies all around the world just by starring in Star Trek alone. I'm just kind of wondering, and I don't know whether we'll get an answer, but um, uh, I'll just kind of put it out there. Why is Shatner um, deciding to go on a suborbital 15-minute hop as opposed to being part of the next uh, four-astronaut civilian mission in the SpaceX Dragon spacecraft uh, into Earth orbit where he could spend several days getting used to zero gravity, seeing extraordinary views, sending tweets to all his fans all over the planet, doing live uh, whatever Bill might want to do with the Earth there as a backdrop. And I understand, and this is, again, uncertain, but I understand, based on the latest reporting, that the next civilian mission from SpaceX will not uh, merely uh, orbit the Earth by its lonesome, but it will, in fact, dock with the International Space Station. And so the civilians, uh, like... Um, 
that uh, billionaire many years ago who was able to buy a berth on a Russian spacecraft and, you know, kind of uh, rent out a room at the space station for several days, uh, several years ago. I'm trying to remember his name. Someone will send it to me in Skype, I'm sure. Anyway, um, if if he could do it back then, why couldn't Musk arrange for the, his tourists who are leasing his uh, rockets and spacecraft to visit and occupy a wing of the International Space Station. Apparently that is in negotiation. I don't know the status, but the next civilian flight for the Dragon spacecraft um, will include, I believe, um, a visit to the International Space Station. So then back to the question, why is Bill electing, Bill Shatner electing to do a suborbital flight, which gives you maybe five minutes, four minutes of zero gravity, when just as easily and for the same amount of money and the same kind of sponsorship, he could have a, an extended mission into space of several days. Inquiring minds want to know. So on that note, um, we've got about four minutes to the bottom of the hour. Uh, let me bring on my guest of the morning. Um, Dr. Douglas Plata is a physician and public health specialist in Loma Linda, California. His undergraduate degree was in biophysics. He went on to complete his MD and MPH with specialty training in family and preventive medicine. His primary interest in space is in the development of a cost-effective transportation system to the moon based upon lunar polar ice for propellant and the establishment of humanity's first permanent foothold off Earth. A description of this plan for sustainable space development can be found at developspace.info. He has founded a new type of free-to-join space advocacy organization called the Space Development Network, which can also be found at developspace.info. And without further ado, Dr. Plata, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you, Richard. Good to be here. Well, I am really looking forward to our conversation, and we've got about two or three minutes at the end. And obviously, the perfect way to begin is to ask, given the brevity of that bio, uh, how did a family physician, a doctor, an MD, get interested in outer space? And do you want to become the next uh, Bones McCoy at the moon base <laughs> that we're going to discuss tonight? <laughs> that would be great. Um, so just, again, we have have just a few minutes until the uh, bottom of the hour but um basically in 2000 well okay so we have I, plenty of time we don't have to truncate this we can pick it up after the bottom of the hour oh fair enough fair enough so uh when i went through high school you know i just when i took physics i just it just really clicked with me i didn't realize that i had sort of a physics mind but i it was very clear that i did so uh, i did biophysics uh in in college uh, but was but was pre-med and, and you know since third grade I wanted to be a physician so to me biophysics was a path towards that um, but when I got into medicine I didn't really use my physics as much as as I would have wished uh, and it wasn't until 2009 when NASA had uh, a, a very important mission called the L-Cross mission oh remember they, vividly vividly yes it was amazing because it was the it was the first time that water ice on the moon had been proven, and this is where they crashed a a Centaur upper stage into a permanently shadowed crater, 
at the south pole of the moon and kicked up that dirt called the regolith up into the sunlight and was able to image and confirm that one part out of 18 was water ice. Uh, and, and about maybe a quarter or fifth of that was organics as well, including carbon and nitrogen. And so the moment I read that uh, news report, I was like, well, you could electrolyze the water into propellants, hydrogen and oxygen. Couldn't that be the basis for a trans transportation system between the Earth and the moon? I tell you what, hold and it so there. I, hold it there at the okay. bottom of the hour. Cliffhanger, folks. You can electrolyze <laughs> the water on the moon. We will describe exactly what electrolyzing water does when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland from the Land of Enchantment on this Saturday, September 25th, 2021. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs, $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment to your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight from the Land of Enchantment on this Saturday evening. My guest this morning is Dr. Douglas Plata, who is a doctor. <clears throat> you know, uh, I don't know whether they make house calls anymore, but he's a doctor doctor. He's an MD. But he also has this very interesting interest in what goes on upstairs in outer space 
which began apparently in 2009. And Doug, you were about to tell us that NASA's LaCrosse mission, which was the first unmanned mission to survey the South Pole of the Moon, absolutely boggled your mind by the discovery of water on the moon. Please continue. Yeah, so the moon is typically considered to be bone dry. And so it, it was suspected that maybe in these permanently shadowed craters <clears throat> that there might be some some water ice. And this 2009 um, experiment uh, mission, as they struck this entire stage into the dirt and kicked it up in the sunlight and confirmed, you know, one part out of 18, which is pretty high. That's enormous. Know, it's It's amazing. And the overall, they estimate there's about 600 million or, or probably more uh, cubic meters of water in these permanently shadowed craters and, and, in, and in the um, the polar regions. Um, and, you know, I, I, I did a calculation that if you had a city of a million people on the moon that could access this water, that much water, um, and if they were to recycle their water, it would last that city of a million about 1,600 years. This is only um, the ice slash water in that one shadowed crater, right? No, no. I, it, it takes into account both sides of the moon, uh, north and south uh, poles. Okay. Uh, so all, all of the all of the, the believed ice on, on the moon. Uh, and so, yes, Mars has, you know, much more resources, uh, you know, useful resources but as but there's no shortage at all on the moon, including of carbon and nitrogen, which which they also found uh, within that ice. They so, also found it, another weird anomaly, and it's been a long time. I mean, you know, years literally since I looked at these papers. But one of the things that jumped out at me is they found, and I'm not whether you were tracking this. They found liquid mercury, the metal that you used to play with when you were a kid. And you're not supposed yeah. to because mercury is really, you know, toxic yeah. and all of us used to handle it and watch yeah. it roll across glass and all that. They found as much mercury in liquid form in that rising cloud of material caused by the centaur impact as there was water. Yeah, so it's, you know, mercury is, is a liquid um, it, well, at least at room temperature, and uh, unfortunately, it's it's a contaminant. We'd probably prefer it not be there, but you should be able to to extract it. Well, there are easy ways to extract it to to filter yeah. it out. The question I have, and these are questions that that's what we kind of do over here, is we ask out of the box questions. Where the hell did that amount of mercury come from, which is equivalent to the amount of water frozen at the poles of the moon? I have not heard that there's as much mercury as there is water. I, I would sort of doubt that. I would have to. I will send you the that, paper. But, okay. <laughs> Which, of course, raises all surprising. kinds of amazing questions that this audience, I think, kind of knows where I'm going with this. But we'll, we will hold that to later in the program. Anyway, so this discovery kind of triggered your, oh my God, bump. Doug? I just lost you. What was that? I said this discovery, this lacrosse discovery of abundant water accessible to future colonists mm -hmm. kind of triggered your whole, oh, my God, this could change everything, right? 
Yes. And so what I did is I joined uh, some online forums uh, and began connecting with with space advocates who are who are lay people, but, you know, highly self-educated, shall we say. I mean, these people I don't consider to be experts. We call them citizen scientists over here. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And so, you know, any question I asked them, they they had a, you know, an, an intelligent answer to, you know, educated answer. And so I began looking at each, you know, each aspect of, of lunar development. And the other thing I know, your friend uh, David Livingston, he has the Space Show, also a internet radio uh, show. And so I found about out about that. He interviews, uh, you know, experts within the field of, of space. Uh, and by that time, it was 2012 when I when I really uh, became a space advocate. By then, there was about 11 years of archives uh, of hundreds and hundreds of, in fact, I think it was like 2,000 maybe, um, shows that he had done. And so I just started consuming all sorts of <laughs> audio files from the archives. You could not find a better source. I've known David for decades. In fact, way back when he was getting his PhD at Stanford, we literally had a conversation in a restaurant with his kids. I think it was a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant. Mm. Um, and he asked me what he should major in at Stanford. And one of the one of the you know kind of check items was space commerce, space business. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, "Oh, for God's sake, go there! That's the future. That's what's going to happen." And of course, it's taken a long time you know, a couple of decades or more for it to matriculate. But now we've got Bezos and Branson and Musk and the the people in New Zealand and people in, in Seattle. In other words, the, the commercial exploitation and development of space is at the beginning of a, such an explosion. I have termed this the second age of space. So your proclivities to look in this direction, I think, are 100 percent right on. And, you know, I understand people can become cynical after what happened in the 90s with with uh, a number of uh, commercial space companies that went belly up. But I'm I'm telling you, this is the time. It, it really is happening now. And it is going to be extremely historically significant. I mean, this is, you know, we'll, we'll get into what's happening down in, in uh, Boca Chica. We, you know, people need to understand this. We are watching something at the level, at least, of Christopher uh, Columbus, and, and certainly like you know Plymouth Rock and all of that. Uh, this is. I would more liken it to Lincoln's development of the Continental Railway during the Civil War, and the reason I say that is because there was a there was a cliche around that that before the Continental Transcontinental Railway. The United States was impossible, and after it was inevitable. We'll take a whole bunch of ordinary humans like you and me, both into Earth orbit and far beyond, has been an economic manufacturing industrial infrastructure, and that's what Musk and Bezos in particular are going to be able to set up, and the explosion is far down the road from Columbus. We aren't discovering a new world. We're going to be making several new worlds in our own image. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, historic analogies that really are applicable. Um, uh, for, for me, I, I sort of lean towards Christopher Columbus <laughs> analogy because, um, because when people start to move beyond Earth, which is going to happen probably within the next 10 to 15 years, or actually probably less than 10 on the moon, 
Um, well, wait, you, me, you think it's going to be that long? Um, I'm I'm being I'm being conservative. You're being frankly. incredibly uh, conservative, Doug. Can, can I call you Doug? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's okay. how I go. All right, actually. call me Richard. Um, anyway, I think you're being incredibly conservative because this is not linear; it's asymptotic. Once you release, you know, what's that great poem? You know, slip the surly bonds of earth. Yeah, uh, which Musk has, has allowed us to do because of his reusable mantra. The the moon development is reusability in 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 spades, because as you just said a moment ago, if you identify a source of water on the moon, and then you use energy, sunlight, electricity, wherever the energy comes from, to split it, you've got rocket fuel, and with rocket fuel and the low gravity of the moon, you can set up such an infrastructure of space industrialization, which of course will be what you know commerce and and tourists piggyback on. I'm thinking more like five years, maybe even four, not ten. No way, not ten. Well, well, I mean, let's be clear because th- there there is steps. Um, so so there there, there, there is what be, there is what there, there's steps. You know, you we, oh we steps can. steps. Okay. We can't jump to the final step, you know, settlement. Why not? Uh, Why not? Who says uh, we have because, to follow what the NASA plan has been and the von Braun ta- plan was? For- I'm, not, I'm not talking NASA. SpaceX is going to land cargo on the moon and on Mars before they land humans. That's yep. just uh, that's what you expect them to do for the sake of safety. Okay. Well, it's kind of um, like Bob Zubrin's model. You know who Bob Zubrin is? Absolutely. President okay. of the National Space uh, of not National Space Society, but Mars Society. Yep. Yep. Yeah, very, very significant. He was an engineer at Lockheed Martin. He knows his engineering. And his idea was instead of going the Von Braun route back in the 50s, where you send an expedition to Mars at once, he recommended, Zubin recommended that you send unmanned cargo vehicles, you position them, you actually manufacture rocket fuel, in this case methane, mm-hmm. out of the atmosphere. You preposition habitats, energy sources, uh, you know, you, you have everything there waiting for your colonists to arrive. That's the model that I think you're describing for the moon, right? Yes and no. Okay. You, I mean, we, we are we are spreading multiple places. We are deep in the weeds. The, the, the yes. And we're going to get deeper, believe me. The the Mars has an atmosphere. You can produce methane rather quickly. To be able to produce methane for for Elon Musk's Starship on the Moon, that's a that's a totally different matter. I mean, I don't think there's enough concentration of carbon to be able to do that. But wait, you just yeah. said that across missions show there's a whole bunch of organics, which of course are based around carbon. There there are, but you have to take a look at the the concentration. Okay, so like so at, like you, any mining enterprise. Yes, yes. Um, so, so uh, you know, one part of out of 18 uh, of the dirt on the moon uh, in, in these permanently shadowed craters, or at least that Cabeus crater, uh, is is water. Okay, and then and then there's an additional, probably about a fifth um, uh, uh, concentration of, of, of that uh, is going to be organics. And it, but it's a mixture of things like hydrogen sulfide and 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 there is methane and carbon monoxide, uh, and there's also ammonia. Do but you happen becomes... to do you happen to remember what the inventory from the Apollo uh, samples was? I don't, but I know that we brought a lot of rocks and and regolith dirt back, 
and I'd be curious to know what the percentage of carbon was just in the regolith. So, so these are volatiles. So, so they well, are. Well, no, carbon easy. is carbon is not carbon. If it's separated, is not volatile. It's 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 like graphite. It's like you know, it's like pencil lead. It's like you know, it's 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 very it's solid. It doesn't evaporate. In fact, so carbon materials do, are very high temperature evaporation points. So it could be mixed in the regolith, in which case you just mine the regolith anywhere on the moon and you get your carbon. Not, not anywhere. No, no, definitely not. Uh, it, the carbon is in it is going to be down in the littoral areas that's exposed you know, over the eons by sun. OK, okay so it just it bakes it bakes it out, basically. In uh, nitrogen is is almost completely uh, non-existent in in the in the dry parts, but in the permanently shadowed craters where you have what appears to be perhaps cometary material that struck, you know, into those craters and then have remained there, you know, since since the time that they that they struck, um, those we we get decent concentrations. And I've I've done some calculations to see if there's enough carbon to be able to uh, to if if you if you uh, electrolyze the water and use the oxygen uh, to be able to refuel Starship, uh, then the side stream of carbon. I was trying to see how much uh, could be used to produce methane, uh, and it's it's not enough. But you might be able to get maybe a, a quarter or, or or a third of the methane to be produced from the side stream of carbon. Um, what I'd like to point out, because this is I think very fascinating is there is a company that's producing a transportation system to the moon that uses hydrogen and oxygen and doesn't deal with, with methane. And that's Blue Origin. That's, that's yeah, Bezos. Yeah, Be Bezos' company. So yeah. uh, for people who are not following the TikTok on this, describe why we've been talking about methane and Musk and methane, rocket fuel, and all that. What was the decision yeah. that Musk has made that Bezos has not made, which clearly separates these two billionaire space, you know, commercialization companies on very separate tracks? Excellent question. This this really lays the, the foundation of what we're talking about here. So so what happens is both Musk and Bezos are both space advocates, but they have different uh, visions for state, space. And as a result, they've, they've chosen different rockets and different propellants and different architectures for what they're doing. Um, so, and, and the beautiful thing is, is they can both succeed, and, and uh, Musk opens up Mars, Bezos opens up the Moon, and, and both are very relevant and, you know, places to go, uh, completely legitimate places to go. So, let's start with Musk. Musk um, has a view that the, the best place to establish a second branch of humanity is Mars. And the main reason he does that is because of the resources on Mars. Um, so Mars is a, a planet with, with like three-eighths gravity, so it's more gravity than the moon, and so that's a plus. Uh, the key thing is Mars has this thin, it's about uh, one-half of one percent uh, thickness of, or pressure of the atmosphere that we have on Earth, okay? So there's a, there's a sort of a wisp of atmosphere, but the beautiful thing is you can, uh, you know, you can land a starship and you can just pump in pump in that air and concentrate it to even liquid concentrations. And it is about 95% carbon dioxide, 2% nitrogen in, in the form of N2, like, like we have the majority of our air, uh, and then 2% argon, and it has a little bit of actual uh, oxygen and then some, some sort of trace 
um, uh, trace gases. Uh, and so what Elon is saying is, let's go to Mars. And that's why he is literally building a Mars rocket down in Boca Chica. And he's designing it to be able to enter the atmosphere of Mars and be able to slow down and do a last-minute propulsive landing. Uh, and he feels the need to develop not just a Mars rocket, but a factory that will crank these things out as though they are, you know, 737s, <laughs> uh, with the goal of making a thousand of these. Now, this may no, wait, when crazy. you say, I'm, I'm confused. Are you saying he wants to establish a factory for starships on Mars or on Earth? On Earth in oh, okay, Boca good, Chica, good. Okay. and this factory is being built while we talk. Right. <laughs> it's actually going to happen. And his, his goal is to get a thousand starships, a fleet of a thousand of these bigger than Saturn V rockets and fully reusable, okay? Um, and a thousand of them so that he can send a hundred people per starship every time the Earth-Mars uh, launch window opens up. And then uh, over a period of, I think it is 10 or 20 years to be able to send a, a million people, I think it's 20 years, to send a million people to Mars to be able to establish a, a city on Mars, which he believes is necessary uh, to achieve full self-sustainability. Okay, so that's that's Elon. Is there anything else about his vision that uh, maybe I missed? Well, the thing that I want to go back to is why did Bezos and Musk choose totally separate paths? The okay. reason the reason Musk has chosen methane is because a la Bob Zubrin, remember the engineer we mentioned a moment ago? Sure. Bob was the first guy to say, look, you can manufacture methane as a rocket fuel in liquid form out of the CO2 atmosphere of Mars. Just mm -hmm. just add energy, you know, have a factory there doing it. Um, and, and then Musk adopted that because with that you can live off the land. Uh, if, in terms of the rocket equation, if you don't have to take the fuel to get back with you, if you can refuel at a gas station on Mars and then come home, the economics, the technical complexities drop extraordinarily it's not linear it's it's non-linear so if you can basically make rocket fuel and on mars both zubrin and musk decided methane is the way to go so musk has designed his entire fleet of spacecraft around liquid methane and the production ultimately to to fuel literally his transportation system back and forth right so so that is correct However, I'm going to make a prediction here, and that is I think the vast majority of people that go to Mars mm -hmm. are not going to come back. That, because why go all that distance to establish a city only to bring people back home and, and not leave people on Mars to establish that city? The, there, I could imagine NASA astronauts that I think will be perhaps some of the first people to land on Mars on a starship, not, not a U.S. government vehicle, but on starship. Uh, they may well come back. But I think after that, when we get more in private development, the people going are going to want to develop Mars. And you can't develop Mars if you come back. So, so yes, the whole methane uh, engines is based upon uh, you know, Zubrin's idea of, of refueling and coming back. Uh, but uh, I think that they might just be sending the engines back to reuse. Uh, but... I think they're going to use the metal of the starships uh, there uh, on Mars. And, you know, you'll have people going uh, to stay. This is, this is very quickly what's, what's going to be happening. 
Okay, well, I don't want to get into the details and argue any particular point. Yeah. We'll maybe save that for later toward, toward the end of the morning or maybe when you come back because there are additional things about Mars and the moon that I have a feeling you're not totally aware of that could change all of these plans. Remember what they say that, you know, um, every war goes to hell in a handbasket as soon as you make contact with the enemy? Making right. contact with the real moon and the real Mars, I think, is going to change an awful lot of things. But I would agree that that Musk's architecture, and we'll call building spacecraft and rocket ships architecture, is very different from Bezos because of their their destination points. Musk has focused on Mars. Gosh, I wonder why. And the audience knows why. And Bezos is focused on the moon. And that is going to create such an interesting uh, interconnection because these are not diametrically opposed systems. Right. Both can They're use both can use each other. And I'm I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will cooperate. I think these legal feuds are kind of like um, you know Kabuki theater. I, I, I do not see, um, you know, Bezos, A, he's lost his first round. He's not going to win anymore. He needs to develop a negotiation with Musk, not look at him as a rival. Uh, I, I think we need to get to Bezos. Yes, exactly. His, Describe his Bezos or what yeah, he so wants to do. Bezos's history is that when when he was in high school, he, he read a book uh, by, by a famous uh, Princeton professor, Gerard O'Neill. Uh, and Gerard O'Neill, um, you know, famously asked his question, his students, a question, and that is, where is the best place for an expanding technological uh, civilization in space? In pre-space, you know, where you know, just empty space, or on a planetary surface? And uh, how the story goes is, they concluded that spinning habitats in free space would be the the best place because you can get a full G, you know, artificial gravity, uh, and for kids growing up. Uh, children, it's probably best to have a full G. So, well, if you want to are, come home to Earth or come back to Earth or visit sure. your grandparents, yeah, or to avoid health problems while you're living there as well. But we don't know if there are health problems of lower gravity. True, we true. have no idea, and, 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 doctor. We have no idea yet. That's part of why you're going to want to go. <laughs> we there 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 are some experiments, but we, we can get into that. Well, I think we have some idea, and, and and the answer is probably even Mars gravity is insufficient. Certainly really? for osteoporosis. Yeah, interesting. Well, let, let me let me just let me just mention that. Um, we have plenty so, of time. These side canyons are very important. <laughs> so there was a study in which they took rats and they suspended the tail uh, and lifted off the force of uh, five-eighths of the force, and, and what remained on the hind legs was three-eighths, which, which is Mars forces. Uh, and, the, and they suspended the tail on little rollers in, in the cage, and so as it walked around, it had less force on its hind legs. And then when, when they, uh, after a period of time, they look at the bone mineral density of those hind legs, and unfortunately, those rats were developing osteoporosis. Just like astronauts um, do in zero gravity in the space station. Yeah, likely slower than what they do, you know, what happens in zero G. But still, if, if you have reduced forces on those legs, they develop osteoporosis. And so, uh, you know, rats are not people. So maybe the story is different with people. But it does give some suggestion that, that we may need some artificial gravity, some spin gravity uh, to, to provide long-term health. Is it possible... This is going to sound like big pharma on, on steroids. 
Is it possible we can develop drugs that can counteract the lack of normal 1G gravity? Because I know there are some experiments going on in the space station right now <clears throat> that are looking at exactly this problem. So we already do have medicines that help with that, and they're, they're used by people on Earth. They're not a, you know, a complete solution, and also there's multiple um, systems in the body that are affected are negatively affected. And so it's a bit of a whack-a-mole where you're trying to plug, you know, plug these holes to, with, with pharmacology. And, and I think um, especially the, the headward shifting of fluids, uh, that's, that's a bit of challenge to, to treat pharmacologically. Well, not to get too diverted, but this is fascinating, and we're coming up at the top of the hour, so again, we'll pick this up on the other side. Um, as a doctor, oh, what a, what, a, what a joy to talk to a doctor. Mm. Is it possible that humans, can you imagine the first baby born on the moon, that humans born in one-sixth gravity will adapt? You know, life biology is incredibly adaptable even all over the earth, you know, hot springs, you know, bacteria loving radioactive pools around reactors, stuff like that. Is it possible that in the uh, neonatal process that a woman having a child on the moon, the child will be perfectly adapted to 1,6G? Um, let me let me mention um, a specific web page in, in which I address this, and, and your your listeners can go ahead and look at it. And you um, might want to also send it to Kintia so she can post it in your section of radio with pictures. Yes. So it is developspace.info, and then it's AG protocol uh, um, slash uh, AG protocol. So AG is artificial gravity protocol, and it will redirect you to a diagram that shows. The animal studies that would need to be done to be able to answer this question of the artificial gravity prescription. Okay, and people will need to see that because I was trying to write it and I could not write it. So, uh, if, if I might, if I might say, if if the listeners could go to developspace.info, this is a space development network, and this is something that if they would like to join the network for free, they can actually participate in in simple ways to be able to help advance this plan for sustainable space development. We are at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Douglas Plata. He is a doctor. You know, he's kind of like Bones McCoy, wants to go into space. Um, done a lot of studying. And boy, are you going to be intrigued with what we're going to talk about next. You are on the other side of midnight here tonight from the Land of Enchantment with a past full moon rising grandly over the Sandias in the west, southwest actually for me. And that is Native American flute music. I thought it would be kind of appropriate tonight. Um, the good news about colonizing the moon, you don't have to move anybody out of the way. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. 
To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>